Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I will discuss the current state of the Republican Party and the GOP presidential primaries. I am pleased to have a well-known political scientist who is an expert in this field. Dr. Julia Azari is professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. She holds a PhD and a master's degree in political science from Yale University and a BA in political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her research and teaching interests include the American presidency, American political parties, political communication, and American political development. She is a regular contributor to Politico and has written for or been interviewed by several media outlets, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. She has been a regular contributor to the political science blog, The Mischiefs of Faction. She has written numerous scholarly works, including a recent book chapter, Presidents and Political Parties, in the 2023 book, New Directions in the American Presidency. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Azari. How are things in Wisconsin? They are lovely. Thank you so much for having me. You can just call me Julia. Yeah, things in Wisconsin are lovely. It's a beautiful July day here, and I will brag about Wisconsin summer until um, <laughs> people ask me to stop. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm jealous of Wisconsin summer. You can have the winter. So let's just get started. Can you talk about your background and research interests? Yeah, I'm uh, interested in, I guess, a couple of things. I'm I, the thing that kind of motivated my first book and my dissertation was I was talking about presidential mandates kind of the connection between elections and governance and the way that people kind of um, build stories about why institutions are or are not exercising power legitimately. And that's kind of led me into being interested in political parties, into how decision-making happens in political parties, and also how people think about um, whether political parties are or are not making legitimate decisions. Yeah, I think there's a lot of disconnect between how the public thinks about political parties and how they actually function. That's just my perception. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's something I've been kind of working on and I'm trying to figure out what form sharing that that research with the world will take. Um, and I've, I've written a bunch recently on, as you mentioned, the kind of president party relationship. Um, I have a chapter on Obama and the Democratic Party in a in a volume about Obama's legacy, and I'm uh, working on co-editing a volume on Trump's legacy, and I've also got the the party um, chapter for that one. So I've really been kind of thinking a lot about the way that parties are designed to kind of decentralize decision making and bring a lot of different voices in. And the presidency is kind of the opposite. The presidency is about you know getting things done and concentrating a lot of power in one person and having kind of a hierarchy. And so how that tension plays out over a lot of different kinds of contexts. Yeah. In other words, uh, the presidency is more top down. Let's get things done. And the parties are more talky talky committees and task forces. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think that the latter is important for kind of representation and building kind of broad based coalitions. So the two can't, in some sense, in the U.S. context, they can't really function without each other. But they also have these this sort of cross purposes kind of thing going on. And I have written, you know, quite a bit in this in this forthcoming Trump chapter 
about the ways in which there are cross purposes in the way that Trump relates to the Republican Party. Okay, I want to talk about that. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk about, I, I think today, I just want to focus mostly on the Republican Party, just because this would be a four hour podcast if we did mm-hmm. Democratic side and things seem a little more interesting on the Republican side right now. Um, so we'll get into Trump. But you know, you've written several papers on the link between weak parties and partisanship. And I'm interested in weak versus strong parties as it relates to this hyperpolarization we're seeing. So I think many people think that parties contribute to this hyperpartisanship and polarization. But as I understand your paper, you argue that it might be the other way around. And you write that partisanship is on the rise. To me, negative partisanship is just out of control. And you've written that political parties are not to blame for this polarization. Can you just talk about your what you found? And let me just break this down. So first, what do you mean by weak parties? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say about what I mean by weak parties is kind of two things that are a little bit tangential to partisanship. And one is that the parties still have the sort of vestiges of their their original structure from the 19th century. So they're decentralized and that the process of them becoming more nationalized and the national party gaining more control over what happens at the kind of at the state level, which is sort of the core building blocks of things like presidential nominations, that process has been really incomplete. And there's only so many sort of carrots and sticks that the national parties have over the state parties. So I think part of it is this decentralization. Um, the other part is is the legitimacy thing. We were saying before about people's perceptions of what parties are and how they work. To the extent that people think political parties are corrupt or we don't need them or they're they're part of the problem for one reason or another, that makes it harder for party leaders and especially kind of for national parties to gain more control over their own processes. And the Trump nomination still I think remains kind of the signature example of something where party leaders were not excited about this candidate and kind of sat on their hands and then the nomination process got away from them. I think a, a lot of questions remain about how typical that was um, or what what it kind of said structurally. But I think what we can all kind of agree on is that parties don't have a lot of ability to resist any kind of party takeover. Is, Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, Julia. Is this new? I mean, did parties in the past have more power to get in a room? I know that on the Democratic side, President Obama made calls and said, uh, okay, uh, Mr. Buttigieg, you need to step out and we'll get you in the cabinet and Klobuchar. And they, they made some deals. So did he, did he have more influence as an elite? Did the party have more influence than on the Republican side? where McConnell had no control over Trump, at least as I see it. Yeah, I think it's, I think that specific question is a little complicated because you have two things going on. You have the ability of elites to have the kind of informal influence and to have some, some sense of kind of like respect, or they have something that someone else wants. And the other hand, you also have the coordination piece, which was also lacking for Republicans. So I wrote about this a bit in 2016, like nobody had anything anybody else wanted. So <laughs> like, you know, like Marco Rubio couldn't be calling people up or I don't know, Dick Cheney or whoever, right? They didn't really have anything anyone else wanted, but also they didn't really coordinate on an alternative. And Democrats seem to coordinate around Biden, even after, you know, months of having this 
enormously crowded and complicated field but obama's also an interesting example because he's kind of the i mean he kind of came in he did have elite support but he sort of he was a little bit of an insurgent candidate in 2008 and there was a sense that hillary clinton was going to be inevitable and obama started to kind of take off with voters and to sort of challenge that so i think parties have always been a little bit permeable and then trump really push that to its kind of natural conclusion. Yeah, it seems to me that if you're running for president, you need either or the elite support and and the money or the people power. And Sanders had the people power. And um, I think Buttigieg had those elites in California and, and Silicon Valley. And Vice President Harris seemed to have neither for whatever reason and never got out of single digits. So I think that's what's driving a lot of this right now. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but DeSantis seems to have a lot of money and I don't know if he's going to get the people power and Trump has the people power. So I'm sorry, that was a bit of a rabbit hole. (laughs) Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I think where I'm going with some academic work is to think more deeply about the connection between those elite levels and the people. And I think, again, like the Democrats in 2019 and 2020 are kind of an interesting example of this because you did have you did have Sanders having a lot of popular support but he never took off with some core groups in the Democratic Party and that includes African Americans which is a really important voting bloc in the Democratic Party and you saw that sort of play out through party elites and people like Jim Clyburn but it wasn't like it was divorced from popular sentiment it was sort of like this is someone who is a long serving member of the democratic establishment but also who is connected um, and has this sort of representational relationship in this case with kind of the democratic voting electorate in the primary in south carolina so in in a perfect system right you, you can sort of observe these representational relationships what i think is kind of going on in american nominations right now is that no one really understands that no one really knows like what is a relationship between someone like john Kasich and Republican voters, someone like Jim Clyburn and Democratic voters, are they distinct or are they are they working together, <laughs> influencing each other? I'm I'm going off script, but since you since you mentioned Sanders, you know he really surprised Clinton, and she had to pay attention to him. What's really interesting is every academic I've had on this show who's talked about this is said, you know, the Democratic Party has made a mistake on giving up on rural America. And as I recall, Sanders won the Michigan primary just by going to rural America. And he went and he talked about, you know, economic, uh, you know, Keynesian economic things and things they were concerned about. So I guess to your point, if you could get a little bit of that and a little bit of somebody who can appeal to people of color and Latinos, but they all had just a piece of different aspects of it and it's hard to get it all in one candidate is that i think that's always yeah that's always going to be the case do you think obama came closest to doing that maybe i mean in the sense that obama had this really not just like a majority coalition for two elections but a really kind of varied coalition i do think obama came closest to doing that i do think it's also the case that obama ran for the first time in an election in which the economy had just taken you know, total free fall. So I think that context matters maybe even more than the candidate. When you say that stronger parties can lessen this hyper-partisanship and polarization, how does this manifest or how is it operationalized? 
I think the consensus among people who study parties is that having stronger kind of formal organizations can sometimes be a moderating force because people who are leading formal organizations are interested in winning elections and that they are going to potentially be more moderate than sort of activist types. Another mm-hmm. kind of alternate formulation is that you draw in a lot of different kinds of activists and issue groups and like the more pluralist the party is, the more moderate it will be. But I guess my point is more that partisanship hasn't strengthened parties. So I want to, I'm going to get into which party is weaker. So you wrote that party weakness is often tied to a lack of discipline and disarray. And so fast forward to today, today, is the Democratic Party stronger and more organized than the Republican Party? Have, have things flipped or how do you see this? I mean, I see the Democratic Party as having been more successful at kind of managing people who are maybe outside the party or people who are on the ideological fringes and not elevating them to the mainstream of the party. At the same time, like, as you point out, they've sort of always historically been known as this party that's big tent and in disarray. One of the reasons I had written a little bit about that is I wanted to get away from a literature on Congress that talks about party discipline because the parties are fairly disciplined in Congress relative to some points in history. And I don't think that that answers the whole question. Going back again to the 2020 nomination, after the coordination you were kind of talking about with Pete Buttigieg and all that kind of thing, clearing the field for Biden, I pointed out, okay, Democrats have a stronger party. They also have a harder job. Going back to what you were saying about you know Democrats trying to appeal to rural voters, you kind of triggered me there because I always think about this. When is the last time someone said, well, what are Republicans doing to appeal to urban voters? <laughs> right? There, it's very rare. And it's because Republicans can win substantial right. amount with you know adding up the the disproportionate representation of the dakotas and things like that yeah gerrymandering had, minority rule the way the senate senate is and the electoral college and all of that they, yeah. they feel that they don't need urban voters and i think that democrats need rural voters more than republicans need urban voters i don't know if you agree with that absolutely and right so there's a bunch of reasons why that are structural and the Democrats have this coalition that is, it draws heavily on people who are historically marginalized, drawing on people of color, drawing an LGBT community, drawing on minority religions, but also there's plenty of people in the Democratic Party who are white, straight Christians, right? And so they have to bring all of these groups together. And the Republican Party is much more kind of homogeneous, right? It is much more um, of people who are broadly from um, similar racial and religious backgrounds and that's you know that's different it's just different and that's sort of my sense about party strength is like is the strength of the party are the mechanisms formal and informal that it has to resolve disagreements up to the task of resolving the internal disagreements and that is obviously sort of fluid yeah i you may (laughs) you made me think of two points that i hadn't thought about um, do you think the Democratic Party is getting less Big Ten? And I just have one example. It used to be that there were a lot of people opposed to a, a woman's right to choose. There were some people, some Democrats from Pennsylvania, that that there was debate within the Democratic Party. There were people, there was like factions and local Democratic parties who were, you know, anti-choice or however you want to frame it. Do you think that? At least in that regard, the Democratic Party is a little bit less big tent. Maybe, although that's, I mean, I kind of, my sense on the issue is still kind of shaking out. But 
the statistic I keep going back to is in the uh, sort of months leading up to the Dobbs decision, there was a Pew survey and it was still like 30, maybe even like high 30s percent of the Republican Party that believe in some amount of choice. The Democratic Party has been, like you said, getting much more unified on the issue and Republicans the same, but still like a substantial number of Republicans. I think that's an issue where you actually have a strong national consensus that tilts in one direction. I do think you're right, though, the Democratic Party is becoming more kind of clearly ideologically unified, especially relative to its its history of being all over the map on some um, really key issues. I think on the other hand, the kind of winning presidential coalition right now is very broad and stretches all the way from sort of AOC and Bernie Sanders and that wing of the Democratic Party into the kind of Lincoln Project Republicans, people who are disaffected by Trump, maybe some of whom might want to return to the Republican Party, maybe some of whom don't. But I think that's like that's what you need to build that the Biden majority. And that Mm -hmm. is a really that's an unwieldy coalition. Right. Um, Just something that you said, you said that parties are relatively weak, except with Congress, the elites seem stronger, but I'm just going to push back. We can have a little fun arguing if that's okay. We'll be civil. You know, it seems to me that Speaker Pelosi was able to really, you know, whip the votes and bring people into line, whether it was the Affordable Care Act or whatever. And, you know, she sort of somehow moderated the the squad. Mm -hmm. I mean, not moderated, but, you know, brought the squad in them up right and so so that was strong right but mccarthy he's he's getting a little stronger but you know with all those votes for the speakership so do you think that well and it may just be pelosi i don't know i'm sort of thinking out loud but do you think that democrat leadership and congress is stronger than republican yeah it's a good question and i think it's somewhat it's mitigated by circumstances my sense of this because Let's see. The last time Republicans had unified government was Trump's first two years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you have like this very fractious Republican Party. And yeah, I mean, it seems clear, like no speaker has really had control over the Freedom Caucus. So maybe a bit, but that they potentially looked more disciplined during the Bush years. I think it matters right now. Like Clearly, McCarthy does not have control over the caucus and is not a strong speaker. There's no question of that. But it's also possible that we would be seeing something that looked a little different if they had a chance of actually passing some legislation. Yeah. Right now. Right. The House just exists to message. Yeah. They're not really advancing any policy goals. They're just investigating uh, and messaging. To your point, it may be more personality driven where Pelosi was unique and exceptionally strong and McCarthy's not a savvy politician because uh, and it may be different on the House side, the Senate side. McConnell on the on the Senate side seems to be a little bit more um, have more in control of his um, caucus. So anyway, all right. Well, that yeah, may, I think that's right. That may be um, to be continued. So yeah, I would. Can I just add one thing to that? Um, I just want to sort of recommend to you and your 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 listeners um, the work of uh, my colleague Matt Green at Catholic University, who is uh, really the person that sort of pushed me on all of this stuff, but who's written extensively about the Freedom Caucus and about about the Speaker and House Minority Leader and all kinds of uh, things like that. I'm really not a Congress expert. All right. So which party is better? at strategic voting and and sort of like nominating the candidate most appealing to the general electorate? Yeah, I think this question is sort of defies a straightforward answer. If you look at recent 
if you look at recent presidential stuff, I think if you look at the 2022 midterms, actually, let's start with that. That's low hanging fruit. What you saw there was a process of nominations that was very dominated by Trump and Trumpist factions in the nomination stage and candidates who had very extreme positions on election denial and candidates who had very extreme positions on abortion. Those things were not attractive to voters in you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, were went very badly for Republicans relative to how they might have gone. Wisconsin and uh, Georgia were mixed. Yeah, like Terry Lake, for example. Exactly. Yeah, 2022, I would say that was an exceptionally, you know, poor example of nominating those candidates. And Democrats, this is something my, you know, friends and colleagues at 538 have been tracking very closely, is that Democrats have tended not to really nominate, if there's a choice between a more progressive and a a more moderate uh, nominee, have generally tended toward the more moderate one, except maybe in districts like the one AOC represents, which is Queens, New York, a very reliable Democratic constituency um, and a constituency that seems very well matched to her views. But they don't tend to do that. They don't tend to say, well, let's nominate this, you know, really hardcore progressive who wants to talk about every most um, kind of ideological issue you can think of. Let's not let's nominate them to run for Senate in Pennsylvania. You know, they tend not to do that. So I guess I'm just saying 2022 and kind of recent midterms are um, a good example of this. In terms of the presidency, I think there's a very interesting phenomenon where Republicans, you know, they nominated John McCain, who was supposedly like party maverick and had cross-partisan appeal. And then Mitt Romney also, you know, supposed to be really kind of a standout, uh, more moderate candidate, former governor of Massachusetts, like relative to Rick Santorum or the the nascent at the time Tea Party movement. And those candidates both lost and lost like very, <laughs> pretty, pretty solidly. And then you get Trump in 2016 and everyone's like, oh, we can't be elected, can't be elected. And Trump's team had a really effective electoral college strategy, even though he lost the popular vote in in 2016. And that was maybe just a campaign difference. But it's an interesting kind of commentary on who is and isn't electable. Um, And the fact that Republicans did make what looked like very strategic choices, perhaps in a time where the timing wasn't good, or maybe they weren't really able to motivate the base. Who knows? Timing and circumstances are so important because I just think that if John McCain were alive today and, you know, younger, he would have a better shot against Biden than Trump or DeSantis. What do you think about that? I mean, maybe, but he would never get out of the the primary and he probably wouldn't even be a member of the party. I mean, his wife was kicked out of the party, wasn't she? Yeah. She sanctioned because she's endorsed a Democrat. Yeah. So that then that argues the point that they are not good at strategic voting. Do you think that Republicans, to the extent the elites have any power, will nominate less extreme candidates in these congressional races coming up? I'm not sure what's going to happen in the congressional races. I have to admit, I got I'm I will be probably very late to the the party there. But no, I mean, honestly, I don't see a ton of evidence of learning from uh yes from 2022 and i also think that that trump is a weird secret weapon in this battle in the sense that while he backed a bunch of candidates in 2022 who were not very ambiguous he himself has it has this ability to be very ambiguous that's really a unique ability once you've already held office but you know he'll point to 
bills that he signed about criminal justice reform he'll talk about how he isn't going to cut and he did this in 2016 he's not going to you know cut social security he's total line a little bit on abortion so you know he is not particularly bound to any ideological thing and he says what people want to hear and and there's substantial number of republican voters who believe him so i think being able to be ambiguous about your positions and your ideology is an advantage in presidential primaries and i also think name recognition is an advantage yeah we're talking about you know whether or not candidates for congress and governor and u.s senate will be more like Kerry lake or more i don't know like john mccain and do you agree that trump has is going to have an if he's the nominee he's going to have an outsized role in helping shape that even though his picks lost uh, for mm-hmm. to a high degree that if he says i love this person even if they're extreme they're more likely to win the nomination i i don't know but that <laughs> would seem to be the simplest prediction yeah it is interesting about the ambiguity because you know at different times trump was very economically liberal and keynesian which and i think most people are becoming more economically liberal in this country and he's sort of all over the place on you know foreign policy and stuff like that but his voters don't seem to care which is interesting do you agree with that yeah i mean and there's if you read um identity crisis which was a book about the 2016 election some of that was an advantage for him because there are there's a substantial number of people who maybe in in principle are opposed to government intervention but in practice they like social security and they like medicare and many of them are in the demographic where they're receiving those benefits and so people like to say that they're against government but are not but then they like individual programs i mean that is a finding from public opinion going back to the 60s and i think you're right i think people have moved away from the sort of reagan moment just because that moment has passed and so people are there's you know a substantial number of people who are more moderate economically i think trump was also able to kind of play in interesting ways with some of those cultural issues if you think back to the 2020 rnc he made a big deal out of showcasing diversity and and showcasing you know people who have been released from prison on his watch and things like that and some of it was playing with the truth and some of it was just straight up I'm not sure what words we can say on you can use podcast. any word you want <laughs> so straight up bullshit there were just straight up bullshit. lies I mean, I think that that's sort of the Trump thing. And Trump has a core of support in the Republican Party that is very stable and very receptive to whatever he wants to say. So to your point, I've always been amazed at how people in rural America vote against their own self-interest. There was a big article yesterday. I don't know if you saw it. I can't remember which paper that Biden's policies, economic policies, have disproportionately benefited rural America. And yet, and I don't know if you agree with that, but and yet there is not a connect the dots. They're, they're just, the Dem- I don't know if it's the, par- the fault of Democrats for not going and driving down the end of the dirt road and talking to rural voters and making that effort and just maybe they're better at governing and not messaging. I don't know. What do you think about that? I don't know. I've thought a lot about this. I mean, I'm not an expert on rural voters, I've read some of the work, you know, there's a Wisconsin scholar, Kathy Kramer, who's written a lot about rural Wisconsin, which is not where I live. I live in Milwaukee. But, you know, her 
she's kind of made the argument other people made the argument that it's not so much that rural voters vote against their interests they just it's just that they see their interests differently but i think that you're right that in terms of of policy benefits there's some like hard evidence to suggest that some policies benefit some groups of voters and others don't and the trump there is also analogous kind of journalistic research when trump was president that kind of said you know here's all these people who voted for trump and he hasn't done anything to solve all its problems that he said he would do and he may have um, made them worse mm-hmm, possibly yeah and that his i think his constituents maybe were you know disproportionately affected by covid and things like that so yeah i think that's right i think it's complicated because i i think it's largely about race and there are people of color in rural areas so that story becomes very complicated but i think you know a good chunk of it is effective messages effective messages in saying this party is for people who aren't like you and those people are going to get power over you and it's difficult to sort of message back i'm a little bit skeptical of the messaging explanation Hmm. again because i think the the democratic coalition is so complicated and messaging has to sort of resonate with a worldview that already exists. Right, but don't you agree that Democrats have been too much on the defensive, with the exception of Governor Gavin Newsom and a few others, and you know, just letting rolling over and letting the other party call them socialists and Marxism and whatever. And you know, I mean, they might be learning their lesson, but don't you think that I mean, maybe you disagree. I just always thought Republicans were better at messaging. Like they they take something like doing away with social security they call it social security reform sounds good and i don't know that's just the way i see it you think i'm totally wrong or is it well i think it's complicated i mean i think obama let let his opponents define a lot of what he did i think to some extent like i've thought a lot about this with regard to that i think that the obama's opponents really framed the affordable care act and i don't think his administration was prepared for that but I don't think there's a magic message that Democrats can say that's going to make people sort of have trust in a system where they're inevitably going to have to be in a more complicated coalition and other people who are not like them might have power over them. Couldn't the Democrats, instead of allowing the Republicans to define them as Marxists or whatever, couldn't they put Republicans on the defensive and just say, look, you know, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is taking away parental rights. He's totalitarian. He's doing all of these things. He's banning books. This is like Viktor Orban and Putin. Or do you, I mean, don't you think they could, or they, do you think they're afraid to do that? No, I think they are doing that. I mean, I think there's no holds barred at this point with DeSantis. And I think that they were effective at doing that in 2012 against Mitt Romney and making him out to be the sort of rich person that you know, this is the guy that fired you kind of thing. I think that was effective. I think what I think is challenging there is doing that in a way that then brings their coalition together and has like a clear roadmap about what they're going to do. Because you did have, you did see that in 2016 where Hillary Clinton was really focused on highlighting what was wrong with Donald Trump. If she had won, maybe we would all be saying that was a brilliant strategy. If she had won, you know, 80,000 more votes in critical swing states, but it looked in retrospect like a bad strategy. But what you and I are saying sort of contradicts what I said earlier about negative partisanship. People vote, people, you know, if you talk to Republicans, they're more animated by anti-Biden 
than supporting Republicans. And this, I mean, you talk to Democrats, oh my gosh, they're anti-Trump, but they're less clear on supporting Democratic policies. So how does the negative part, and I'm sort of throwing this at you and I'm thinking out loud, but how does the negative partisanship, so the negative partisanship didn't work for Secretary Clinton, mm-hmm. right? You Is that what we're saying? I mean, it didn't work. It didn't need it didn't do what it needed to do. She still did win the popular vote, which I think is kind of missing. I think that putting so putting so Ron DeSantis is a good example. You sort of put him on the defensive and highlight the ways in which the things that are happening in Florida are many of these things are very unpopular nationally. People don't support book bans. People don't want to attack trans kids. At the same time, then you have this cadre of people in you kind of like the center left intelligentsia or the loudest people maybe on this. But you have a bunch of people who are like, well, the Democrats have gone too far. They're too identitarian. They're too left. Right. So you kind of can't win. You know, how are you going? How are you going to play that? And how are you going to to stake out a party or build a party coalition or get people fired up for like, we're going to take some middle of the road positions on whether trans kids are human. Right. That I think that's sort of the problem is again, it goes back to if you're trying to build a very large coalition of people and you're trying also to establish yourself in a in a very like changed environment where people's social attitudes have been evolving very quickly, I don't think there's a clear roadmap for that messaging. And I don't think the same message works for different elements of the party. And it's not 1850, so you can't just say different things to different I was, different I was geographical... just I, I tell my students that in the old days you send a mailer to this group saying I'm pro-union and to this group you say I'm pro-business, but with the internet that those days are gone, right? Yep, I mean exactly. Okay. So in your book chapter, Presidents and Political Parties, and we sort of talked about this, you you've written about this tussle between parties and the president, and you write that's that this is sometimes insider-outsider dichotomy, and some presidents help their parties, some hurt. And I think there's a continuum, but can you talk about recent presidents and how they fit into this? I know you wrote an article about President Obama, and I always thought that Obama helped his party by building lists and volunteers. But I mean, am I wrong about this? And what are your thoughts on? Well, so the thoughts, my thoughts are mainly based on reading um, people who've studied the organizational element of this more closely than I have. But a lot of it is Obama built all these lists, but he also sort of kept them um you know he didn't do that (laughs) through the democratic party and the obama for america ultimately became like a 501 organization as opposed to becoming part of the democratic party so there's a one of the people who's worked on this is one of my uh grad school friends dan galvin um so there's a lot of among people who think about party organizations kind of um skepticism about obama as a party builder i don't think that obama I don't think Obama really likes parties or party politics. And I think that's part of the problem. He's kind of a latecomer to being active in the Democratic Party. So that's part of the issue. But yeah, he didn't really build out, you know, this is, and this is what, what Galvin finds is this is a common problem with Democratic presidents. They build up their own organizations. And then those organizations, mostly they sort of dissipate. Um, with Obama, it became like his own separate nonprofit thing, but they don't build up the capacity of the National Party per se. And Obama also was pretty neglectful of state organizations. And you see that reflected in some of the dynamics we were talking about before and also in the sort of 
struggles at the state level of of democratic candidates so that's kind of i think the the sort of flaws in obama's party legacy so i have two points that you made me think of so it seems like obama was more like senator sanders of vermont where sanders sure as hell isn't sharing his huge list of donors he's not sharing that with the democratic party right so sounds like obama is kind of like that I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit. Yeah, that's Sanders is a more extreme example in the sense that he's, you know, not historically been a member of the Democratic Party. But yeah, I think that's, um, it's not an unfair kind of framework or reference point, because all of these, all of the sort of OFA infrastructure that Obama built up, a lot of that didn't end up with the DNC. So to your point, do you think Obama, and I never thought about this, do you think Obama's but not focusing so much on the states has contributed to this situation where Democratic elites in the DNC just give up on Ohio. They didn't send any money to Ohio. And that guy, I think it's Tim Ryan, he was begging them. And he just, he lost narrowly. And he said, I could have won if they'd sent me some money. They sort of have sort of given up on Florida, which I think is a mistake. I may be in the minority, but I know Florida well. And I mean, do you think Obama helped contribute to that? I think a lot of contributed to that. I don't think it's his fault. And like I said, Galvin traces this back to Harry Truman. So, <laughs> um, so certainly Obama didn't invent this. Like he, you know, he's talks about JFK, and I guess he actually starts the book in with Eisenhower. So I'm not sure if we can pin we can lay this to the feet of Harry Truman, but JFK for sure. I think that's right. I mean, I think Obama himself. I mean, Obama won these states that we're talking about. Wisconsin also would fit into this category, and Mandela Barnes here in Wisconsin, challenging Ron Johnson for Senate, um, actually came much closer than Tim Ryan did in Ohio and yeah. complained about lack of national support. And I think it was a legitimate complaint that Barnes had. Yeah, and ran behind, you know, behind the Democratic governor who won. Yeah, I think I think that that's right, and I think that Obama has significant prestige with democratic partisans and you know had he sort of devoted some of that to making state parties cool that might have made a marginal difference again i don't want to blame him for this or suggest that he was he was the cause of these structural problems but he sort of lent his prestige to other types of causes he's also been a very politically active ex-president yeah i mean he was a great candidate great president in my humble opinion but you know if you don't bring the states along and the local, you know, local politics is important, then you can be the president and then your party's out of power in the next midterm. And that happened to him to some extent. Yeah. Is there a president? I'm just throwing this at you (laughs) with no warning. Are there presidents that are the opposite that throughout history that might have brought localities and states Mm -hmm. along? I mean, because the other thing that just occurred to me is the Democrats have not had a bench in Florida. I mean, you have to groom, you have to cultivate, you know, city council members and those kind of people. Mm-hmm. And so has has there been a president who has sort of helped local and state mm-hmm. party candidates? Yeah, I mean, here again, I'm sort of drawing on my my recollection of uh, Dan Galvin's book on presidential party building. And he essentially says, you know, Republican presidents do much better at this. And identifies efforts by there's Eisenhower, there's Nixon, there's Ford, Reagan, that all put more effort into. It's mostly building up the National Party. You also did have things that sort of mid-century Republicans where they're very focused on um, trying to win in the South. And so they're kind of building up 
um, Southern Southern Party organizations. But it's also very touchy. Yeah. The the extent to which the president is going to get involved in a um, in a day to day in the day to day operations of a local party is a very touchy issue. I have my students read this chapter about FDR and him like trying to influence the 1938 midterms and the kind of level of defensiveness around, well, we're Georgia and, you know, we I haven't <laughs> read a chapter that's about Georgia, but there happens a number of places. So you do kind of have that. Um, but all of those presidents had some track record in um, building the bench in the George W. Bush years. You saw um, a lot of investment in, in state parties also and kind of strengthening of state parties. The, the end of the story, though, is more complicated because you have this, like all this state infrastructure, um, all this bench building. And then 2016 is like, oh, what is the result of all this bench building? <laughs> you know, it's it's this overcrowded field of of people in 40 year old type candidates um but but ultimately who do you get you get donald trump um so so much for bench building and then the trump people were super effective at taking over some of these state and county level parties well you know since you brought this up i just i really want to talk about these local they usually call them executive committees at the county level or the parish level um louisiana has parishes <laughs> and i think alaska calls them something else too but anyway at these county level um you wrote that there's almost an and you know maybe putting words in your mouth you wrote that there's almost an absence of local party organizations in the u.s Do you, is, so is that accurate that you think they've declined i mean they've certainly declined since um you know middle the middle of the 20th century i i don't really work on these um county level parties um, and I think they sort of vary. But... Well, like, for example, in Miami-Dade, Florida, um, there I, I think they have a robust apparatus now, but it's not, but but now it is not the old guard conservatives, it's MAGA. And, you know, they literally uh, drove traditional Republicans out in Miami-Dade. In fact, they did mm -hmm. so violently in a parking garage. I mean, the older people just couldn't handle the death threats. I mean, it was crazy. And so um, is is there really less local party apparatus on the Republican side or have they just been taken over by this social movement? There's certainly more, I think, Republican apparatus um, than Democratic. Um, I think what I was thinking about when I wrote this, and I initially wrote this paper in 2018, um, was really about the sort of languishing of democratic state and local organizations relative to sort of money going to the top. And what I was kind of thinking about there was the way people are really focused on national politics. And when they want to give money, they give, you know, nationally, and that there's a sort of whole analogous argument different scholars have made about that kind of gutting of, of local media and how that's led people to sort of focus on national media and that's led to the kind of a fusion of party positions like the person running for governor for mayor for president that there's a sort of convergence um in the parties and this kind of party nationalization and there's also the the way the media environment allows people to kind of skip these robust party organizations that you would once be really dependent on um to get your candidacy out so that's kind of what i've been what i've been thinking about but there's thousands of counties in the United States. So there's obviously going to be a ton of variation there in terms of 
what is there even an organization how organized is it has it been taken over by maga has it been taken over by you know yeah so and in in politico you wrote quote trump's dominance in the gop isn't what it seems end quote and we've sort of talked about this and you know trump may have been bad for the party losses in the midterms losses in the suburbs and that trump is really a social movement so can you expand on this a little bit yeah i think there's sort of two things to understand about trump's apparent takeover of the GOP because it obviously has happened but it's complicated and one thing what I was trying to get at in that Politico piece was that Trump is um more of a social movement leader in the sense that and in the sort of sense that social movements have a more kind of disruptive end um they're anti-establishment they're not focused on you know what parties are doing which is trying to build a larger coalition and that's really where i've kind of drawn um my conclusion about about trump as a social movement leader is that this is really not it doesn't have that same end as a party and so it has a sort of the rough edges um of coalition building in um in a social movement and it, it leads trump to be kind of incapable of building out um mm. and it's more about this is another this is sort of also from some of galvin's work but kind of deepening um deepening these party connections but not actually building out the coalition very much the other thing i think is is critical to understand about the way trump leads the republican party is that he sort of consistently puts other Republicans in a position of having to defend things they don't really want to defend. I I sort of put this to my students and and told them, you know, you know that one friend that's like always saying something and you have to decide, are you going to defend them? Are you going to distance yourself from them? And in some sense, that person has a little bit of power over, over everybody because everybody is responding to them. That is an essential element of presidential power. But in another way, you know, going back to the friend analogy, I'm like, you might decide, you know, I'm I'm out, I'm done. And so that's so it's like a certain kind of power, but it's also a power with this sort of caveat to it. Some of what I've tried to argue in this forthcoming piece about Trump's impact on the party, like I looked at I looked at how different politicians reacted to um the Charlotte the violence in Charlottesville in 2017 and Trump's and Trump's kind of statements about it and he had said there's you know good people on both sides and that was really controversial all these different Republicans it was interesting to track because some of them were more more vocal than others and the ones who are more vocal many of them are out of politics and you know people like Paul Ryan um people like um now I'm drawing a blank on his name but the former senator from Nebraska who's now I think the president of the University of Florida system um Oh yes. Uh-huh. So right, ben, a lot of people, Ben Sass, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Ben Sass. And who had, had been like a pretty consistent Trump critic. He wasn't he wouldn't didn't vote against his stuff in the Senate very often. You know, that's the that's sort of, you know, that's the thing that I saw is the people who defended Trump are many of them still in politics. Um, and the ones that didn't have largely left politics, left Republican politics in particular so yeah you're right speaking out against trump has not been great in the case of sass his reward 
was that DeSantis made him essentially made him the president of the University of Florida because mm -hmm. DeSantis has this battle with Trump. So that's right. sort of an interesting. Right. But it's also true that people who have really jumped on the Trump train, I mean, Cruz is a good example of this. Like, it's not exactly clear that they've gotten a lot of benefit from it either. Um, and that, I think, is kind of the kind of the rub there. Um, and yeah, that's I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to get at um, in that argument is like Trump Trump continually puts people in these bad situations. It's almost painful for me to see this tightrope that people like Ambassador Haley you know, they're trying to <laughs> not criticize Trump and yet distance themselves. And, you know, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's odd. He's another good example. Like, it's not, it, you know, it's not building out, it's not building out a kind of bench of people who are going to interpret Trumpism. It's something, it's something different. That's, that's sort of as far as I've gotten uh, thinking about the 2024 nomination in particular. Well, Julia, that seems like a good place to take a pause. And then next week, if you're willing to come back, we can talk about how this is all playing out today with the nomination. So I really, really appreciate your taking the time. I know we've got uh, the beginning of the fall semester and we're all very busy. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.